This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes in the iTunes store, Google Play, or on the Podbean app. And while you're there, I'd love a review. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm your host, Jackie Pack. This episode is a continuation of the very last episode. Last episode, we talked about Chapter 5 in the Tao of Fully Feeling by Pete Walker, and it just took up the whole hour. And I don't like to go much over an hour for podcast episodes. That's kind of long in and of itself. So I just split it out. And this episode, we're going to be talking about chapter six. So he starts chapter six off with a quote by Carl Jung. And he says, neuroses is always a substitute for legitimate pain. Now, neuroses is not really a term that we use in the mental health field. I don't know that I've really heard it much at all in my 28 years. But if you're looking for a definition, right, it comes from Freud and it would be defined as a relatively mild mental illness that is not caused by organic disease. So something's not going wrong in the brain or in the body, but it involves symptoms of stress, depression and anxiety, obsessive behavior, hypochondria, but not a radical loss of touch with reality. So that's kind of what we're looking at when we talk about neuroses. That's how Freud would have defined it. Carl Jung is saying neuroses is always a substitute for legitimate pain. So again, we're looking back, 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 right? 50s, earlier than the 50s. And we're seeing the beginning of psychologists and psychoanalysts starting to grapple with trauma. Again, we didn't have that official diagnosis of PTSD until the mid 80s. So that's kind of how he starts that is with a quote from Carl Jung. He follows it up with a quote by Freud, who says, One cannot flee from oneself. No flight avails against danger from within. Hence, the ego's defense mechanisms are condemned to falsify the inner perception. Not infrequently, it turns out that the ego has paid too high a price for the services which these mechanisms render. So in this episode, no, sorry, in this chapter, I do this all the time in group. I talk about in this, I mean to say sentence and I'll say in this book. And then I'm like, nope, chapter, nope, book, sentence, whatever. So in this chapter, chapter six, he talks about that there's four key ways that children protect themselves from being overwhelmed by the emotional pain of prolonged abuse and neglect. Now, Freud, well, Freud is credited for really kind of starting to identify what he called defense mechanisms. Actually, I think it was his daughter, Anna Freud, who deserves most of the credit for the work around defense mechanisms. Um, Defense mechanisms are like things that we use to defend ourselves, right? From reality or from the truth or something like that. So he talks about that these four are the defense strategies and postures of dissociation, hypervigilance, obsessiveness, and compulsiveness. So he says, children in dysfunctional families instinctively become hypervigilant, dissociated, obsessive, and or compulsive to block out the unbearable harshness of family existence, to numb their felt sense of fear and shame, and to dull their aching hunger for love and appreciation. Children cannot experience the raw, ongoing pain of parental rejection and still maintain the desire to live. In the dysfunctional family, Existing in a constantly defended state is the lesser of two evils. If we are forced to rely on defense mechanisms throughout our childhoods, they rigidify as permanent states of being and strategies of living. These defenses and their destructive side effects injure us throughout our lives when we do not relinquish them. Living in an over-defended state is a painful relic of the past that causes us a great loss of vitality and an enormous accumulation of new unnecessary pain. He continues, while our defenses were like lifelines in childhood, we now have the opportunity as adults to stop harming ourselves by over-relying on them. Our habituation to our defenses causes us to accept them as normal ways of being and leaves us oblivious to their harmful effects. The goal of recovery, however, is not the complete elimination of our defenses. There will always be occasions when our defensive postures healthily serve us. Recovery, however, aims rather at giving us the choice to be undefended in safe situations, 
so that we are not insulated from the emotional love that can now be had in real intimacy. Progress in recovery then is generally reflected in spending less time dissociated, hypervigilant, obsessive, or compulsive, and more time relaxed and spontaneously engaged with life. So there's a lot he talks about there. I did a podcast episode in 2020 called The Impact of Family Dysfunction and talked a little bit more specifically about the research into alcoholic homes and kind of the beginning of the 12-step fellowship of ACOA and kind of the research that has come from looking at dysfunctional families and the disease of family dysfunction. So if you're interested in maybe hearing a little bit more, that episode is a fairly popular one actually. And there's some authors that I talk about in that episode that you might want to familiarize yourself with if you wanted to learn more about that. I think too, going back to, we kind of ended the last episode talking about how he says, you know, usually around 30 is when individuals start to kind of have the curtain pulled back and they start to get glimpses into the trauma from childhood and to see the impact that it has in their adult life. And so again, I think, you know, I often will tell clients these defense mechanisms that we have or these ways of coping have an expiration date on them and they aren't supposed to work indefinitely. And that's good news, right? Actually, because these are not the greatest coping mechanisms and we're not supposed to live life simply coping. And so the good news is they do have an expiration date and usually you know, clients come in a little bit after that expiration date where they can't quite get life to work the way it had been working. I say that loosely because, you know, we would question how well it had been working if, if we're coping with childhood trauma. So let's talk about dissociation. So one of the things I, you know, tell people is sometimes clients will call it, I get it, I understand it. They'll call it disassociation, which is different. Like, again, Give me a moment because my mom was a school teacher, right? And we had to know definitions of words. So disassociation would mean I'm no longer associating with something, right? I'm disassociating with that. But dissociation is the psychic defense mechanism by which we instinctively blunt our awareness to harsh or undesirable realities. So it's pronounced dissociation and not disassociation. Dissociation defends us from being over-impacted by internal or external circumstances that are too painful or unpleasant to apprehend. You know, sometimes I'll say too, like, you know, I'll, I'll kind of say it's the brain. Really, it's maybe the nervous system more so than the brain. Sometimes I think we give the brain more credit than it's due and it's actually the credit goes to the nervous system. But I'll talk about how, you know, rule number one for the nervous system or rule number one for the brain is to protect the asset. And the asset is the individual in which the brain and the nervous system resides. And so in order to protect that, right, it will have these coping mechanisms. It'll dissociate. It'll blunt our awareness about these unpleasant or almost unbearable realities of our life in order to protect us and to get it so that we can get up and go to school the next day and hopefully learn something. Sometimes that's not really possible with the trauma that kiddos have experienced. But it's, it's a you know, way of helping to protect the individual, even though it causes long-term problems, right? It's going to kind of kick that can, kick that proverbial can down the road so that at some point that individual can now face the whole mess that's been created, right, by coping and start to unweave and unravel and learn how to to live life in more meaningful and more satisfying and loving ways. But the person's alive, which is what defense mechanisms hopefully help to keep happening, right? They protect the asset. They keep the asset alive. Now, when we're dissociated, we unconsciously remove part or all of our awareness from our immediate reality. And dissociation, unlike, or no, like the other defenses, it's not an all or none phenomenon, right? There's a dissociative scale that uh, assessment that you can take online. I don't remember how many questions it is. I, I mean, it's pretty lengthy, right? And you know, I had recommended a client take it, I don't know, this was months ago, right? 
And I thought, oh, it's been a while since I've looked at that assessment. If I'm asking them to take it, I should refresh my memory of this, right? So I start taking it. And if I remember correctly, the first like 10 questions, you know, you're like, oh no, oh no, I'm dissociating, right? And then it, it gets a little progressively more into, right? Again, it happens on a continuum, which we talked about in chapter one, that emotions happening happen on a continuum. And there's different levels of intensity of our emotions. There's also different levels of coping mechanisms in order to deal with the different levels of emotions. And so the further you go into it, you know, either that's a higher state of being dissociated, a more moderate state, or a pretty extreme state of dissociation. But most of us mildly dissociate, right? And that's not necessarily a problem. Um, mild dissociation manifests as an innocuous absent-mindedness, right? Maybe, maybe we are having a conversation, maybe we're even present for the conversation and all of a sudden a thought pops in our head and goes, oh, you need this at the grocery store. And I start thinking about that, right? And I'm, I'm now kind of elsewhere, even though my body and I'm trying to pretend I'm in this conversation, my thought has left and gone somewhere else. Now, in all fairness, and depending on who the person is, we may have to say, hold on, back up. I got lost in a different thought. Because thoughts randomly pop into our brain, right? That's not us doing something wrong. Sometimes that just happens. So being fair and saying, yes, I did just kind of leave the conversation. Because as well as talking to each other, our bodies also talk to each other. And for people who are tuned in, they're going to feel that you left, right? And so we don't want to gaslight and say, no, I never left. I never thought about what my grocery list needed to look like. So, you know, sometimes we talk about mild dissociation. We might reference it in terms of daydreaming, right? Daydreaming is not a problem necessarily. I mean, it could be if it gets much more extreme, but, you know, daydreaming is actually a healthy psychic mechanism when it's not excessive and doesn't interfere with normal life functioning. In moderation, daydreaming is a delightful form of entertainment, he says, an important part of creativity and a direct channel into the deepest levels of intuition. He says sleep is also a healthy form of dissociation, unless it's excessive. Those who cannot stay awake when they're physically well-rested sometimes become groggy as they dissociate to avoid something they don't want to face. And they might pick up that grogginess as being tired and needing a nap. He says, some of us become instantly drowsy whenever our feelings are stirred up and threatened to emerge into consciousness. It always feels like we're tired and need to sleep. Dissociation is also commonly experienced as dullness, fogginess, being in a daze. You know, sometimes this happens. We've talked about before getting in the car, headed home, but I'm intending to stop off at the store and grab something at the store. And next thing I know, I'm pulling into my driveway. It's a mild form of dissociation where I'm not necessarily present, actively tuned in, remembering this other thing, and I was just kind of going through a routine or automatic behavior. But, you know, deeper dissociation can really be a disconnect where, you know, sometimes other people might look at that and say the lights are on, but nobody's home. Or, you know, sometimes if you've ever had that experience, I mean, as a therapist, sometimes I have that where I say something and I don't think it's going to be a truth bomb, but I definitely see it's a truth bomb and they don't even know really how to respond to what I said, right? And they can't even necessarily let that truth reverberate through them. And so they just go offline. Um, you know, I've had clients who will do that and sometimes I'll say, you know, hey, there tends to be uh, some dissociation that happens. Are you aware of that? You know, we might do the assessment. We might say, how often is that happening in your regular life, right? And how would you like me to handle that when that happens in therapy? Do you want me to just sit silently and kind of wait for you to come back here? How would it be best for me to, to handle that dissociation? And again, it gets more and more severe. And he talks about what really severe dissociation can look like. Um, but he says, you know, dissociation protects us in childhood from absorbing the full toxicity of destructive parental messages. Letting our parents' diatribes go in one ear and out the other is actually a healthy response to an unhealthy situation. He says dissociation also allows children to stay physically present around trauma without fully experiencing it. 
And some children anesthetize themselves so thoroughly with dissociation that they feel little or no pain during beatings. This is another reason why we customarily minimize our parents' violence, right? Is because we were somewhat dissociated and so we don't really recall the feeling. And so it's easier for us in the later years to minimize the abuse or the beating. And, you know, this is, I think it was in, I don't know what chapter it was in, when he talked about how memory without feeling results in feelings with no memory. So again, this is an example of that, right? Where I'm having this, it's not necessarily a memory, right? But it's going to be a memory. I might remember that my mom beat me or my dad beat me, but I didn't have a feeling. And that can then later result in having these feelings with no memory to connect it back to, right? So I might have this general sense of being on guard around my parents, but I can't link it back to a certain memory because there wasn't a feeling with the memory when it occurred. So that's kind of how he talks about dissociation. He says dissociative shock is, you know, it can be natural sometimes when we hear news that we can't quite wrap our head around. I mean, sometimes, you know, I, you hear people older than me who talk about when JFK was shot, I wasn't alive when that happened, right? But kind of this dissociative shock that happens or sometimes it's the opposite of that and we all of a sudden remember everything, right? We remember the details. We remember what the sky looked like. We remember exactly where we were, who we were sitting next to, right? Other times we kind of go into more dissociative shock because it can just take time to kind of digest some of that overwhelming emotion that happens when things like that happened. Another example would be 9-11, right? I know talking to a lot of clients who are parents now and I mean, I have, you know, kids and just talking about how it is for them and their kids who are experiencing higher levels of anxiety and stress as we're watching events unfold with Russia and Ukraine and what does that mean? So, you know, there can be that type of dissociative shock that, again, it allows kids maybe to go to school and to learn math or to learn whatever they're learning in school, right? while there's this anxiety about the world at large. And sometimes in the recovery process or in the healing process, right, we're going to have some dissociation. I have clients where, you know, they might have a really hard session, really hard session, and time's up, right? And I got another client and they got to leave. You know, now sometimes I'm trying to help walk them out, like, what's the plan when you leave here? Or can you sit in your car for a little bit? And Maybe let some of this emotion pass, let it come and then let it pass or write it down. Some things that we talked about in our last episode, right? And, and I'll sometimes say, I'm going to check in with you. I'm going to circle back. You know, I've got appointments until seven, but I'm going to text you afterwards and just check in and see how you're doing, right? And sometimes they're like, yeah, that was a really hard session. I'm okay now, but wow, that was really emotional, yeah, it was, right? And then they can maybe somewhat get back into life, go to work, somewhat function, right? Sometimes I'm telling them, maybe helpful to tell your spouse, this is a really heavy session. I'm just giving you a call. I'm going to go on a 20-minute drive if that works out. When I come home, I don't know how much space I've got for stuff. So I may need to just go to sleep, right? Sometimes that can be helpful for couples to support each other through that process. He also talks about how most recoveries must weather occasional experiences of feeling overwhelming grief in order to achieve significant recovery, right? So we can't at the first hint of overwhelm or the first hint of intense emotions, we can't check out at that point, right? Or we can't shut down. Like sometimes I have to say to some of my clients like, "Hey, I'm hearing from, you know, my colleague who works with your spouse that after our last session, you've been checked out for a week and haven't been really participating in the business of the house, parenting, house cleaning, dinner, that type of homework, that type of stuff, right? What's that about? Because like we, we have to build some tolerance for this, right? Like sometimes the session isn't that overwhelming to cause them to shut down for a full week. I mean, it did, right? We have to talk about that reality but we also have to know that we have to build 
some tolerance for this, right? That there are experiences or times in healing where we're going to feel overwhelming grief and that that is actually a necessary part of recovery. So can I allow myself to kind of trace that feeling down and see what actually is there? Maybe I journal about it and sometimes I'll say free write, see what comes out, right? Something so that I can like process it through enough so that I can be functional and not just completely check out for a week. And, you know, again, sometimes it can trigger emotional flashbacks or it can trigger memories, right? If we think about how overwhelming it must have felt in our early childhood and how feeling overwhelmed or feeling confused or feeling, you know, whatever was a part of how it felt when we were kids. We're remembering how that felt as kids. And so we need to experience, we need to remember these intense feelings of abandonment and neglect in order to find our own, in order for our adult self to know how to step in and heal that inner child and do that inner child work, right? When I was two weeks ago, two weeks ago when Mark Nepo was in town and I was at his Saturday workshop, oh no, it was actually Friday night when he spoke. And he was talking about that term, remember, right? And he talked about some of the origin. I think I wrote it down and put notes in my phone about it. But he was talking about that word remember and how, you know, it's actually kind of going back and like we are remembering people, right? We're bringing them back in or we're bringing these parts of ourselves maybe that have been exiled or forgotten or undeveloped or untapped and we're pulling it back so that there's a wholeness right? So that we can pull all of the parts back together and remember, remember ourselves. Carl Jung said, it is only in the state of complete abandonment and loneliness that we experience the helpful powers of our own nature. Again, sometimes that little girl's heart or that little boy's heart, we have to let it break and we have to let them remember how horrible it was to feel in their childhood, right? So that this adult self can actually step in and tend to them and know what to do for that self. The next defense mechanism we get into is hypervigilance. So sometimes it's also called hypervigilant or hypervigilance, but it's adult children who are automatically scanning the environment for cues, wanting to know what's in front, behind, to the left, to the right of them at all times. I used to work with a client who, you know, would talk about when they went out to eat, him and his wife or family, whatever, whenever he went out to eat, he was very particular about what seat they had in the restaurant and it had to be in the corner and he had to have a view on the door, right? So nobody's behind him because it's a corner. There's not a lot of people to the right and left of him and he has a clear shot at anything that's in front of him. That is some hypervigilance and that is a problem in adulthood. Hypervigilance is the defense strategy of becoming intensely watchful. Hypervigilance is a frozen, contracted, adrenalized state of anxiously anticipating hostility. So again, when I was talking about, you know, kind of dissociative shock and that sometimes people remember everything about that moment, that would be the hypervigilance, right? Where this protective part comes on and it's like taking a snapshot of what's happening and burning it into our memory versus a dissociative shock where we don't really recall what happened, where we were, anything like that. So in nature, you know, this corresponds with the freeze response, the posture that animals instinctively assume when they cannot utilize their fight or flight response to combat or escape attack. And we now know that children who are subjected to ongoing abuse instinctively become hypervigilant, assuming rigid postures of intense observation and anticipation. The author talks about when we habitually shrink and freeze in hypervigilance, we are doing damage to our health through a chronic contraction of our body's musculature. So our muscles are typically contracted. They're typically tight. We're not relaxed. We're not at ease. And that has physical consequences on the body. We have the research that talks about that. It can impede the functions of circulation and respiration and it blocks the flow of chi. He's referring to chi, you know, as the acupuncturists refer to it as the body's circulating supply of vital energy. 
He says it usually comes with shallow breathing and a constant tension of hypervigilant depletes us and leaves us susceptible to injury and disease. He says most of us experience varying degrees of hypervigilance. Only in times of the greatest threat does hypervigilance manifest as a paralytic kind of frozenness. He says hypervigilance is a child's only means of protection in an abusive family. By remaining perpetually on guard, they can sometimes recognize subtle indications that their parents are entering the attack mode. They notice those unspoken, maybe covert shifts in tension, in mood, in the emotion of the home, and they can be prepared for what's coming and kind of put up the guard or kind of go into that hypervigilance. He says um, it gives them time to hide, create a distraction, or shrink and make themselves a smaller target. He says sometimes it only provides them with enough time to get their hands up to cushion a sudden blow. When the pandemic first started and we all went into sh to lockdown, right, and kind of being very shut down and at home, my kids would say to me, you know, Mom, I so I was born in 1970, right, so kind of grew up in the 70s and 80s. My kids would say to me, like, oh, this is this feels like what you describe as, like, your childhood, what it felt like in your childhood, right? And I would say, well, I mean, minus cell phones and Netflix and streaming and texting and you know, all of that type of stuff. Yes, I think you're getting a feeling for my childhood, right? Because they would always, like, sometimes when I would share things about, you know, just childhood, and I mean, we were bored, right? And they'd be like, why, why? I would often go in my room, my bedroom, and I would shuffle cards for hours. I would just shuffle cards, right? And so my kids were like, why are you good at shuffling cards? And I'm like, because I shuffled cards for hours. And they're like, why would anybody do that? I'm like, well, this is boredom. Some of it was boredom, right? Some of it was also going into my room so that I stayed off the radar and I didn't trigger one of my parents into some catastrophic blow up, right? Or some fight that started. And so, I mean, I, I would tell them like, yeah, I'm listening to my radio for the right song to come on because I'm making a playlist on my cassette tape, right? Which sometimes was true. But I also, I mean, most of my siblings, I think we spent times isolated in our room in order to try to, you know, kind of, we didn't want to walk on eggshells, but we also didn't want to trip something up, trip the wire so that it exploded. And so just going in our room kind of allowed us to like maybe be ourselves. I mean, we all had to share a room. And so we could just kind of go in there and at least be away or kind of shrink or at least be off the radar. He says the defensive posture of hypervigilance can also serve as a distraction from emotional pain because we're looking out as a way of avoiding looking in. He says children numb their chronic fear, shame, and loneliness by keeping their attention constantly focused outward. He says many adult children are habituated to hypervigilance because their unresolved grief threatens to emerge whenever they're not on guard. Sometimes I wonder, you know, I'll, I'll get clients or even some friends who will describe themselves as an empath, right? That's kind of a trendy word right now or it's a trendy thing to be right now. And I wonder sometimes how much being an empath in adulthood has roots in childhood trauma. And one of them is this hypervigilance, right? I can feel other people's energy. I can read other people's emotions. Um, you know, sometimes with clients, I'll say, have they given consent for you to be in their emotional space? Have they consented to you being there if they're just standing in line at the grocery store by you? Because I think that's a problem, right? I think I understand the root in childhood trauma and just that need to scan, to read the environment, to pick up on other people's emotional energy. I get that. And in adulthood, it's probably not appropriate to the person who you have no relationship with and are not going to be next to after they leave the store, right? He talks about also that grieving releases the emotional tension that keeps us suspended in hypervigilance. And it allows us to start to relax and become more agile or more at home in our bodies, right? Again, hypervigilance kind of creates a rigidity and so being able to relax and feel more at home in our body and move with ease and feel at home in our bodies. 
he says hypervigilance is self-destructive to the degree that it's chronic. Again, sometimes we need to have that danger system get activated and come on. But if it's chronically on, we know that that's self-destructive. For one thing, we know that it tends to produce higher cortisol levels and high cortisol levels can be corrosive to our physical body, right? It can be corrosive to our system. He says there are many situations in life, especially in our modern industrial societies, in which hypervigilance is necessary and helpful. He says safe driving, for example, requires considerable hypervigilance. And those who are not hypervigilant in traffic usually have more accidents than those who drive defensively, right? If, if we can anticipate drivers coming, changing lanes, whether they're using their turn signal or not, you know, we're kind of reading the road, we're making assumptions about other drivers, and we tend to have less accidents if we're hypervigilant than if we're kind of dissociated while we're driving, not really paying attention to the flow of traffic, that tends to result in more accidents. He says mild hypervigilance is also useful in our social lives. He says many of us are prone to attract people as abusive as our parents were. This is kind of known as what he calls repetition compulsion. Sometimes in my field, we call it trauma repetition or betrayal bonds. So he says, because of this, we need to be more discriminating in choosing our friends or choosing our romantic partners. And we need to be cautious with new acquaintances until we have adequate time to assess whether they're you know, fair, whether they're respectful, and can they be consistent in those behaviors. He says it's not you know, unusual for people who are hypervigilant this way socially. Again, this is more of a mild hypervigilance to shame themselves because they're always somewhat non-trusting of new people. You know, I, I know somebody who, when they meet somebody, their first impression is always, I don't like them. And I've just learned, like I don't shame them, right? And I think they don't shame themselves. I did nicely point out the pattern once, like, hey, I don't know if you're aware of this, but it seems like there's a pattern. Every time you meet a new person, you don't like them. And I think I understand that, but I just didn't know if you're aware. And then like once you become more comfortable or you're around them more and they've kind of proven themselves to be trustworthy, then you know, you kind of forget that initially your impression was that you didn't like them. He also talks about the hypervigilant dissociation two-step. So he says, you know, an adult child can be habituated to both hypervigilance and dissociation and that these defenses can coexist in a survivor. And so we've got, you know, a survivor whose body is hypervigilantly tense and contracted, but whose awareness is dissociated and not preoccupied with careful watching. So again, this is going to go back to that phrase he talked about, memories with no feelings result in feelings with no memories. He says, more common though is the survivor who switches rapidly from one defense to the other in an all or none manner. Hypervigilant to the point of exhaustion, and then they suddenly just kind of collapse into dissociation. They drift off into their own little dissociative world and kind of are foggy and out of contact until something new kind of awakens that system and puts them into hyperarousal and hypervigilance. And he says, you know, for many adult children, they're strangers to kind of the gray area in the middle between these two of being alert or aware, not hypervigilant, but alert and aware, noticing, but also being relaxed and feeling at ease. You know, there's, there's kind of these stopping points that maybe are not familiar or places that, you know, we haven't visited before because we go from hypervigilant into dissociated, back to hypervigilance, back to dissociated. Another, you know, way that he talks about another defense mechanism is obsessiveness. You know, it's kind of this excessive mental preoccupation. So when we think of obsessiveness, right, we think of thoughts. So this excessive mental preoccupation defends us against our painful feelings. He says, many of us become habituated to obsessively thinking in childhood in order to distract ourselves from feeling the hostility and lack of love in our families. You know, often we talk about in addiction that addicts learn at a young age to live in their heads. And this is what that is, right? I can learn to constantly go into my mind and my brain and learn things as a way of avoiding 
the emotions that reside in my body. He says one of the most common forms of obsessiveness and one that often passes as a functional behavior is nonstop thinking, right? We can't turn our brain off. And sometimes in our Western world, right, we also think it's a sign of strength to not need a lot of sleep, like somehow sleep has become a weakness or something. And so sometimes you'll have people who brag about, oh, I only need four hours of sleep a night, right? And otherwise my brain is just constantly going and I'm thinking all these great things. Well, there may actually be some unresolved childhood trauma that is, you know, that you're coping with. And one of the ways you're coping is to not be able to turn your brain off for very long. Because again, I mean, when we're sleeping, that's a vulnerable state. And if vulnerable states were not safe in childhood, then we're going to do the least amount of that as possible. And then that conscious comes back online and says, okay, wake up. We got to go. We got to be on. We got to be working. We got to be moving. We got to be thinking because we don't want to be unconscious, right? We don't want to be in a sleep state because that's vulnerable. I know when I was doing my neurofeedback training, God, this was, I don't know, years ago. And, you know, so it was, it was basically two weeks and I think I, they were like nine months apart, right? So you went like Monday through Saturday and did training and then practiced it and did some consultation and stuff like that and then could come back and do the level two neurofeedback training. And in the level two, right, we got into some neurofeedback that helps with trauma resolution. And, you know, as most trainings that I go to, which I think is a good thing, require us not to just learn it intellectually and take in information through our brain because that doesn't make us an effective therapist, right? It actually requires us to use the methodology and to both in the training be a clinician as well as a client. And that was similar with neurofeedback, right? I've had, I don't know, probably over 100 neurofeedback sessions myself, part of the training and part now I can do it for myself. And so when we were doing the trauma part, right, and we're getting into, you don't need to know all of this, I'm going on too long, but the alpha theta, right, which really gets us into kind of some unconscious states. And it just wasn't happening for me, right? And I could look at the graph, right? It's showing my conscious brain waves. It's showing my unconscious brain waves. showing my sleep waves. It just wasn't happening for me, right? It just, I wasn't getting there. I could feel relaxed and I could feel at ease and my graph would show that. But I couldn't actually get into this modality that they were teaching and that we were supposed to be experiencing. And as I was talking to one of the instructors, you know, she just kind of said to me like, you have childhood trauma? And I said, I do. And she's like, yeah, there's no way your conscious is letting your subconscious or your unconscious come online when there's 14 other people in the room. She's like, just when you get back, go in your office, maybe be the only person there, you'll be able to do it. She's like, but here your conscious is like, yeah, no, that's not going to happen. And so, you know, when I finished the training, went home, it was like a week or two later, I had some time at my office and I just, I did it and, you know, and and it worked, it happened, but it just wasn't going to happen with other people in the room. My conscious was not going to allow me to go to that vulnerable state when there was uncertainty or unpredictability or other people that I didn't necessarily know well. So obsessiveness can be healthy. Again, we have to think about it in moderation. Maybe we're not necessarily calling it obsessiveness. In addiction, you know, we kind of term obsessiveness unhealthy and maybe we can focus and that would be the healthy side of obsessiveness. So he says, you know, like the other defenses, obsessiveness can be healthy in moderation. You know, we can have prolonged periods of concentrated thinking and that can be very valuable for certain tasks. You know, we couldn't learn to read or write without obsessing about language and kind of understanding that. And he says our lives would be greatly impoverished if we didn't spend a good deal of time reasoning, analyzing, introspecting, and philosophizing. He says thinking can be a joy when it's not just a distraction from feeling. You know, and he says there's a lot of real life situations that require this mental focus for us to figure that out, right? He talks about you've got a decision to make and you've got two good options. We have to be able to really kind of focus in on both of those and discriminate and all that stuff to arrive at a good decision for ourselves. 
similarly, you know, he says with relationship decisions we're making, that type of stuff. You know, he says in early recovery, we may have to obsess or focus how to communicate our feelings, you know, and that may not feel really fluid. It might feel somewhat awkward. He says there's usually a great deal of consideration involved in learning to express upset feelings in healthy ways. And prolonged contemplation can help us discern whether our hurt comes from the past or whether it's present and whether our feelings should be released on our own or expressed directly to the person we're upset with or, you know, directly expressed to a fair witness. He says wisdom is the most important decisions of life. And sometimes it only comes through weeks or months of thoroughly examining all of our options. And of course, in matters of great importance, healthy conclusions and decisions usually ensue from weighing all of our thoughts and feelings about a given issue. So, you know, that can be healthy, that ability to really examine and look from multiple perspectives and examine things from different possibilities or, you know, project different outcomes. That can be a kind of a healthy way of using that defense mechanism of obsession. He says oftentimes, you know, in therapy, therapists are guilty of this and clients can be guilty of this where too much attention or too much importance is given to the content of the obsession instead of just the fact that obsession is happening. Sometimes, you know, I will say as a therapist, sometimes the content is a cue or it's a clue into the past. Usually there's, you know, sometimes, it, especially like in OCD, where the O part starts for that obsession, there can be some fear that has a specific content. Maybe it's a sexual content or, you know, something about being dirty, constant hand washing, constant checking. That would be the compulsion part, right? Compulsion is the act, but this obsessiveness about safety. Again, that can be a clue that we're dealing with something in the past and this is a manifestation in the present of unresolved or unfinished business from the past. And he talks about, right, that sometimes in obsessiveness as kids, we learn ways to get through the pain by an obsessive behavior, right, or an obsessive thought. And ultimately the goal in working on obsessiveness, right, is to shift the focus of their awareness away from the head or what's going on in the thought process into our body and to get into the experiences and the emotions that are happening in the body. Sometimes, you know, when we're first talking about this, that sounds like that's easier said than done, but it can still happen. And that's part of the goal of recovery, right? We've got to be able to reconnect the brain and the body. And sometimes in this disconnect, that's where the obsession is popping in. He says, you know, sometimes as kids, we learn certain behaviors that, you know, kind of were ways that we coped at the time. He talks about for himself counting, that counting was one of his obsessive defenses against feeling. And so he says, you know, now I usually assume if I'm catching myself counting, I'm usually assuming that I've gone unconscious and something internally is upsetting me, which is why I'm counting. And I just kind of am mindlessly counting when I don't need to, right? And he says, if I focus my awareness deep inside myself at such times and ask myself the question, what hurts? Then I usually will discover that I've stuffed my feelings and I need to drop down into my body and the obsessiveness typically will cease. So sometimes, you know, things like Kelly McDaniel in her book, Mother Hunger, she also kind of talks about that process and then it moves into the next defense mechanism which is compulsive so counting again we may not do it out loud we may count in our head and then let's move into compulsiveness a lot of times these go together not all the time but a lot of times obsessiveness usually leads to a behavior which is the compulsiveness so compulsiveness is the defense strategy of using a repetitive behavior or a narrow set of behaviors to become distracted from the feeling. So this is what Kelly McDaniel kind of talks about in her book, Mother Hunger. She'll talk about, and again, this is out of the age appropriate behaviors, right? So thumb sucking, skin picking, you know, sometimes I've worked with clients with the trichotillomania, which is the hair pulling, nail biting, overeating, fidgeting. You know, those are common compulsions found in abused or neglected children. And again, it's a way of distracting themselves from their feeling into 
some physical manifestation or some behavior. He writes, in the course of surviving our childhoods, many of us became addicted to compulsiveness. And as we grow older, we may continue to rely on our old compulsions or become dependent on new ones, right? Often working in addiction, I often tell my clients the great thing about getting older is there are so many more compulsions to choose from and you have access to so many things as an adult. I say that kind of tongue in cheek because I don't think that's the great news, right? People can really get lost in addictive behaviors, which, you know, when we talk about the definition of addiction, often I'll say it's a maladaptive coping mechanism, right? That results in unhealthy behaviors that interrupt with normal functioning of life. So, you know, in like talking about OCD, I think one of the most classic or the most commonly known is kind of the washing the hands over and over throughout the day. But usually that compulsion has a thought behind it, right? So there's usually some obsessive thought behind the behavior. And he talks about that some compulsions are more socially acceptable than others, right? So some of these include workaholism or incessant cleaning. Perfectionism tends to be pretty socially acceptable, although it can have some really devastating impacts on the people close in their life for the person who is a perfectionist. Spending or shopping compulsions, often we kind of laugh about that or kind of joke about, you know, retail therapy or born to shop, shop until you drop, those types of things where, you know, we kind of frown upon illicit drugs or like having a a drug problem, right? That's definitely frowned on. Maybe we're not frowning upon the use of drugs just if it becomes a problem. You know, a lot of people enjoy emotional eating and we can joke about emotional eating without really looking at the seriousness of it. And then one that I see often too that is more socially acceptable is exercise, where there's this compulsion to exercise sometimes more than once a day, definitely every day, but it's kind of rooted in this obsessiveness about uh, being flawed or this need to be perfect or this need to be whatever, right? That exercise is providing them. The idea behind compulsions, right, is it wears us out. Our bodies are not designed for long-term compulsive behavior. Compulsive and obsessiveness behavior diminishes our lives in a lot of similar ways, regardless of what the obsession or the compulsion is. You know, whenever these uncomfortable feelings get triggered, the compulsiveness tends to tap it down or deflect it or numb it out. You know, he talks about how many compulsives eventually run themselves so ragged that they unconsciously can create accidents or illness or depression just to get a break from their addiction. And he says also the wear and tear on our bodies can also then start to compel us to look for relief through medication, which can, you know, maybe have a good intention, but often just results in additional compulsiveness or ways of managing the compulsion in the first place, right? So if we're talking about workaholism, you know, there's drugs that they'll take, sometimes over-the-counter medication, but usually it will result to more illegal drugs in order to support the initial compulsion, which is the workaholism. And, you know, eventually we build up tolerance, we're going to need more and more, in order to maintain the behavior or the addiction or the workaholism. And that's going to have its own side effects, right? It's gonna have damaging fallout and consequences in the long term. Also, compulsiveness doesn't just hurt the individual. I think sometimes we, you know, with maybe with drugs or alcohol, we can see that it hurts the individual. Sometimes with the more processed behavior stuff that he gets into, so not necessarily the substance addictions, but the process addictions. Sometimes we have a hard time as a society recognizing the damage that can be done with process addictions. And not only does it hurt the individual, it's going to harm anybody in relationship with that individual. And, you know, often it can have fallout for the person's children and the cycle continues. Now, compulsiveness frequently will pair with obsessiveness and many people will alternate between those two in order to avoid feelings. He gets into sex addiction, that type of stuff. I have a lot of episodes on sex addiction, so I'm not gonna spend a lot of time going through that, 
But I think he does a really great job pointing out some of the socialized messages that then result in compulsive sexual behavior that doesn't actually work and leaves us feeling even emptier or kind of takes us back to these feeling states as a kid that then triggers more pain and we have to numb that out as well. Maybe, again, this book was written in 1995. So, you know, he's talking about how women maybe don't compulsively act out sexually. I would say that's not really the case anymore. I think we don't have a lot of good data on that, but I think that that is far more common than maybe it was in 1995 or maybe than we were recognizing or that women were talking about it in 1995. But he talks about, and it could be confusing because he kind of talks about this need to talk, but I would say what he was describing there is codependency. And so it's this compulsiveness to over-focus on the other person and do for the person. The addiction kind of becomes the relationship or this other person instead of the pain that they're feeling. So just kind of an idea there. And then he talks about, you know, just the busyness that we're prone to in our life. And, you know, he talks about how, I mean, you know, compulsiveness can look like um, chronic busyness. And as I was reading this part and listening to him talk about it, I was remembering uh, when my kids were young and those stages of early motherhood and even mid-motherhood, I would say, because it's not like the busyness decreases when they get older. They're still very busy. And as long as they're living in your house, I feel like it's still a pretty active and busy time of life. And, you know, there's a lot of busyness there. But he talks about how for some moms we can move out of that, like that phase of life is necessary. He also talks about how important it is to have a partner who's actively engaged in that as well. It works best if you have at least two people, sometimes better if grandparents, aunts, uncles, whoever, if the support system is even bigger, although we've moved away from that. But that we have to navigate and be able to, when life changes and life starts to slow down, I'm in that phase of life now where life is slowing down and being a parent is not as time consuming or time demanding or busy demanding as it used to be. Can we adapt out of that, right? And I will say it is an adaptation that we have to get used to. But I remember, you know, my mom, my mom was always busy. We used to kind of joke about how we could never watch a show with the lights off because my mom was grading papers or crocheting or she was always doing like three things at one time, which is a problem, right? That's chronic busyness in order to avoid emotional pain. And, you know, there was a time when we were building a house and we sold our house and the timing was going to work, except, you know, builders typically never give you an honest timeline of stuff. And so we had this like three month period where we had to be out of our house before our house to move into was going to be done. And my husband and my mom convinced me it would be good for us to move in with my mom who, you know, was home alone. All the kids had left at that point and she was just a single person living at home. And she was like, you you should just move in here, right? I knew it wouldn't be a good idea, but my husband and my mom convinced me that it'd be fine. Three months, it's only three months. I noticed during that time period, I went back to like picking my nails and having like hang nails and all that type of stuff because of just the tension and anxiety being back in that circumstance. But, you know, my kids were busy and, you know, I was taking them to school in the school that they were currently at. And, you know, my mom's house was probably 20, 25 minutes away. And so there was a lot of commuting and time spent in cars and they were just getting more active and busier. And I remember one time, you know, coming home and it had been one of those days, a lot of time in the car, a lot of time shuffling kids back and forth, doing all that type of stuff came home and you know my husband was home making dinner he had picked up one of the kids and he was home making dinner well at my mom's house making dinner and my mom was just like ah I just love the rush of this excitement I have missed this right and I thought I just you know it's one of those where you just kind of like have to like like kind of cringe without letting her know that I'm like shaking that feeling off because I'm like this isn't this isn't a good feeling it's busy but I don't get a rush of excitement at the busyness. And I'm grateful to come home and to be done 
and to have some downtime as a family before we collapse into bed. And so just kind of noticing that for my mom, like that hadn't necessarily shifted. Her kids were far grown and she just loved that rush and having us back in her house kind of brought that back for her. And she was just expressing how much she loved it and how much she missed that. And, you know, for me, I just thought, no, that doesn't feel good at all. Again, compulsiveness can have a balance or a moderation where it is healthy or can even be an enriching part of our life when used in moderation. He says a modicum of ritualized and repetitive behavior in life is necessary and healthy. He says our health depends on good habits of eating, exercise, sleeping, personal hygiene, Learning a skill or a craft also requires repetition. Learning to read and write takes practice. Proficiency at sports or music or any really of our hobbies, right, or interests take a lot of repetitive training. And he says most forms of work require some compulsive-like behaviors. You know, I've talked before in an episode about the addictive system and the recovery system. And a recovery system would set us up for zone behavior and healthy behavior instead of kind of that addictive and preoccupied and obsessive system. And he says, you know, grieving allows us to kind of release the tension that fuels the chronic busyness, that fuels the compulsiveness, and it can reconnect us with our intuition, with higher levels of intelligence that reside in our deeper levels of consciousness. And this can then guide us in making healthier choices or better choices about how we use our time. You know, he warns against recovery becoming obsessive compulsive. Sometimes we will joke in the addiction field, right, that you don't want your recovery to become addictive because we haven't actually then changed behavior. We've just swapped out a new compulsion. And he says, you know, we don't decrease our defendedness. All of these are defense mechanisms. We don't decrease our defense mechanisms by hating it. Or by thinking we have to eliminate it and we have to never do it again. And instead, we have to understand it. We have to be able to remember why these defense mechanisms started and have compassion for the self and even have some gratitude as to how this helped us cope, how this helped us survive what might have otherwise been unsurvivable circumstances and experiences. He also says, you know, we have to be careful because as we're working on waking up and understanding and exploring our childhood and how it's impacting our present self, there's going to be times where we need a break from that. There's also going to be the opportunity where we can slide back into defense mechanisms, compulsions, or denial. And we don't want to have that happen. I just wanted to end with just a quick story. He tells the story about Will Schutz. Schutz? I'm not sure how to pronounce that. There's no L. Otherwise, I would pronounce it Schultz, who was the former department head of the Holistic Studies program at Antioch University. And he would occasionally assign his classes days of what he called, quote, endarkment, to balance their marathon efforts at enlightenment. And he said on those days... Students drank wine, they ate sweets, they danced, they played games, they told jokes, stories, and they refused to focus on self-refinement. And he said most students reported that that day helped them to reconnect with the lightheartedness of the child within, which in turn refocused them on attaining balance in their lives. And so I just thought that was a great story and a great illustration of the importance of balance and doing things in moderation and that even... At universities, sometimes professors understand the need to have days of endarkment in order to balance out the pursuit of enlightenment. At the end of this episode, I want to remind you that your story matters. Remember there's something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story until it's finished. Until next time, Jackie. The Legal Stuff. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and entertainment and does not constitute therapy nor should it replace competent professional help. The Prayer of the Perfectionist. Nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. 
Help me to remember the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me to be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I am not alone. I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen. <laughs>